CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi, and welcome to the Let's Talk Bitcoin show. This is episode 423. I'm Adam B. Levine, and joining me today, Stephanie Murphy. Hi there. And Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. Andreas is out this week. I've been trying to figure out how to talk about this topic for a while because cryptocurrency is this really kind of strange flat structure that has all of these little hierarchical structures built on top of it. And you can take that analogy and you can really, really zoom in on it or you can really, really zoom out on it. It's kind of still true really regardless of how you're looking at it. And I think that a lot of this has to do with just the nature and sort of the oddness of cryptocurrency and of Bitcoin as a community, right, as a movement and as a technology that also is attached to people getting rich sometimes. Today, I want to talk about a topic that I've been calling catalysts and CEOs and take a look at what the cryptocurrency space looks like today, what it looked like in the past, and talk about some of the different attributes that got us to where we are today. Satoshi set an interesting precedent. They led with their ideas and to a lesser extent, their code. And the early spark that was Satoshi in that contribution catalyzed first Bitcoin and then the cryptocurrency movement at large. Those who believed in that vision were given an opportunity to get rich, in some cases crazy rich. And that combination of factors led first to altcoins, then metacoins, then ICOs, SAFs, STOs, and IEOs, which I don't think we've even talked about on the show before. And who knows what will come next, because clearly the path of innovation that's occurring here is not over at all. But it also created what feels like a strange legacy that we're going to explore today. As simply put, are charismatic leaders who emerge from that flat structure that is the Bitcoin protocol more or less dangerous, more or less problematic, more or less notable than the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Elon Musks, Jeff Bezos, and Steve Jobs, who really lead their movements? There's not that much of a difference between a Satoshi Nakamoto and a Jeff Bezos, except for the way that they fundamentally went about inciting the change that now has kind of swept the world, in one case, kind of the e-commerce side of things. And in the other case, this digital currency or cryptocurrency or blockchain or Bitcoin movement or whatever you want to call it. Today's conversation is about decentralized catalysts and centralized CEOs. The first thing I thought of when you said Satoshi contrasted to Jeff Bezos was this is the difference between a certain personality type blended with introversion versus extroversion. An extroverted person who is very smart and capable and intelligent and can see the future almost, but wants credit and wants to be the face of an organization and is comfortable in that role, you end up with someone like Jeff Bezos, who's out there and he's totally comfortable with that, even though he attracts heat sometimes. But Satoshi didn't want the credit. Satoshi wants to be behind the scenes and gets everything they needed from 
just being the mastermind who's kind of silent and letting other people be the face. And I think that's really interesting. If you study personality types, maybe even like the Myers-Briggs, Satoshi is like your classic INTJ personality type. They're like the mastermind architect, but they don't need the credit and they don't need to be the face. Jeff Bezos would be like an ENTJ who's like the CEO and the leader and wants to be the public face. I think that's a really interesting point, but I think that there's another factor here maybe, which is that was it a choice for Satoshi to take the type of catalyst, like behind the scenes, never revealed role? Or was that a factor of the, not just the disruptive potential, but what was being disrupted? Of course it was a choice. I mean, Satoshi clearly thought through the implications of what they were doing carefully, but if they really wanted credit, they would have justified some way to take the credit and to be public about it. I think you always have a choice. I think another pretty good way to differentiate Satoshi from Jeff Bezos is one of them makes several hundred million a year contracting with the CIA, and the other one was never again heard from once someone spoke to the CIA. I don't know whose point that supports, but I think the big different factor is that there was a legal path for Jeff Bezos to do what he did. And even if he was an introvert, it's still a good choice for him to do it if it winds up that he has all the resources and success. I don't think we see that in practice very often where you have a founder who comes in, catalyzes a thing, and then leaves before it actually becomes successful and their contribution isn't largely replaced by what comes after. I don't think that it's so cut and dried that what Jeff Bezos was doing or wanted to do, there was a legal path for him. I mean, he was doing something that nobody had ever done before. What was that? Avoiding state sales tax? This is another good point. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff Bezos has been really interested in Star Trek. He wants to create a Star Trek future. And some of the things that he's been doing are totally unprecedented. And so it's not as though you can really say, oh, they're definitely legal because there's never been a legal precedent to establish that they are legal. You could say, oh, well, he's just doing things that are a gray area or questionable, but he's not asking for permission, and that's an admirable quality. So you're talking about different levels of challenge. And so with the Jeff Bezos thing, and with examples like Uber and other things like that, you are talking about companies that are doing very disruptive things, But the question is, who are they disrupting? And in both of those situations, the person or the entity that's being disrupted, they're state governments. And so if you're like a national company and you have presence in many, many states, that actually gives you the ability to play a bit of a game there. The thing that Uber did is kind of the reverse of what happened with Napster. Napster was a decentralized network for file sharing that then hit a bunch of national and then even global organizations that suited everywhere. But it was ultimately fighting these national or global organizations. Whereas Uber, they weren't fighting any global or national organizations. They were fighting lots and lots and lots of little regional monopolies. And it's to a lesser extent true about Amazon too. Every state where they weren't collecting sales tax, well, that was an individual fight. So it's not like they had a problem with the United States. They had a problem with each individual state. Look at what happened with projects in the lead up to the invention of Bitcoin and all of those centralized alternatives They were competing with the federal government for a fundamentally monopolized right in the right to issue currency and control sort of the dynamics of the money that we all use. And that's a place where it seems like you couldn't have done this as a CEO because people tried that and they basically all wound up getting arrested or getting all their assets seized and in many cases getting their customers' assets seized too. So as we can see, 
There are definitely reasons why people do decentralize and centralized organizations, whether it's from personal reasons, just because they don't want the credit in some cases, or in some cases, because having the credit is dangerous. And on the other hand, the advantages of taking on that leadership role, well, the thing about a flat structure is that it's a flat structure. And so even if you're on top of it, it still means you're basically at the same level as everybody else. But organizations, you know, companies, these are hierarchies for the most part. And so if you have that role at the top of that structure, well, that's a lot higher than you'd be if you were at the top of a flat structure. All of this comes back to one of my favorite books. It's really short and highly recommended. It's The Starfish and the Spider by Rod Beckstrom and Ori Brafman. I read it actually before I became interested in Bitcoin, and it was really kind of a formational book for me. We've talked about it on the show before, but it's been like five years, so I figured it wasn't a bad topic to kind of bring up again. The subtitle of the book is The Unstoppable Power of Leaderless Organizations. And if you're a fan of decentralized technologies but have never read it, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Quoting from the book, A spider is a creature with eight legs coming out of its central body. It has a tiny head and usually eight eyes. If you chop off the spider's head, it dies. And that's exactly what happens with a centralized organization. A centralized organization has a clear leader who's in charge, and there's a specific place where decisions are made. If you get rid of the leader, you paralyze the organization. Now, this contrasts with a decentralized organization, which is a fundamentally different animal. It's actually a starfish. At first glance, a starfish looks similar to a spider in appearance, but the starfish is decentralized. Starfish doesn't have a head. The major organs are actually replicated through each and every arm. And in reality, a starfish is a neural network, basically a network of cells. Instead of having a head like a spider, the starfish functions as that decentralized network. And you can even, in nature see situations where a starfish has been wounded and, for example, an arm or even several arms have come off. What tends to happen is that actually both pieces will then grow into a complete starfish, and it's another method that they can reproduce. You might say that that's inefficient from a biological perspective to duplicate or pentuplicate. I don't know how you even say that word, but to make five copies of all of your major organs and neural tissue it offers them this great advantage of being able to regenerate just from a small piece. It means that while a starfish might not have perhaps some of the advantages that a spider does, it also isn't vulnerable in the same way that a spider is to damage to, you know, very small parts of it. Because it, again, it's just not centralized. We're going to talk about this concept in a different way a little bit later. But what other comparisons do you like besides this kind of starfish and spider for decentralized and centralized organizations? And a kind of broader question I want to come to is, how many companies do we actually think or how many projects do we actually think like rough ballpark percentage in crypto actually are starfish versus how many might be using a network that is a starfish, but in reality are themselves spiders? I like to talk to projects and say, hey, are you a centralized company using a blockchain or a decentralized application? And they'll say, oh, oh, we're a decentralized application. I go, that's fantastic. Again, no problem with being a centralized company using a blockchain. Shapeshift and purse.io are amazing products. No, 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 we're decentralized. I go, that's great. How do you effectuate consensus? What do you mean? We're on Ethereum. We use Bitcoin. That's how Bitcoin and Ethereum are decentralized. But when you want to update your company's logic, how do you update it? Well, we just push this button and update it. And I go, oh, so you're centralized. They go, no, 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 we're decentralized. Oh, how do you effectuate consensus? There are so many projects, I think, that conflate the two concepts of being in a decentralized ecosystem, but being centralized. I think when it comes down to actually looking at a lot of the projects, we're going to realize 90, 95% of them are centralized companies using a blockchain. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's just sort of funny how much of a spider they look like rather than a starfish. 
I think that that's a great point. There's another interesting thing that I've noticed in the space, especially with my focus on tokenization over the last couple of years and trying to figure out real world applications of that, is that when you're talking to someone about something like decentralization, which is one of these kind of fuzzy concepts for a lot of people, oftentimes the way that they're talking about it has to do with their perspective. And so in the case of your company, a lot of times when you're talking to them like that, I bet what they're thinking to themselves is, if we were a normal company, here's how we would behave. And here's how we wouldn't be using these decentralized elements. Ergo, because we're using more decentralized elements than we would if we weren't using any decentralized elements, that makes us decentralized. But as you're saying, the structure that you're using is a lot less important than ultimately how do decisions get made? Who's in charge? Is there money that's being spent even? Because in most cases with truly decentralized networks, the contributions come. The reason why they're so robust is because if the money stops, it doesn't matter because nobody's getting paid and everybody's just kind of doing it for their own reason. One of the most telling moments that expresses that thought was a while back, I went to one of the first hyperledger conferences that IBM had thrown. And there were 400 people in attendance. And I was the only one in a hoodie, of course. (laughs) And by the end of it, 5 p.m. rolls around. And I couldn't get a single person to go out to dinner with me. And it was the first time in, I think, three years of going to events involving anything to do with blockchain, where any number of that magnitude of people would go to an event. And then the moment it hit 5 o'clock, I didn't even realize the distinction outside of the fact that after that moment, everyone was gone, no one would go out to get food. It struck me how shocking it was to see tangible way the difference between a decentralized community and something that people are just doing because their boss is paying them. And just that physical manifestation of zero interest outside of it just being their job. Right. The job thing. You weren't expecting the conference to be like that when you got there. It was a shock to you. You were like, hey, guys, who's going up for dinner? (laughs) Hey, let's hang out with the hyperledger community. Let me de-bias my assumptions about these people. Like, let's have fun. No. (laughs) I would love to talk about the comparing and contrasting of some historical events where the Spanish conquistadors were going to South America and they were trying to take over different people. And there was a big difference between what happened with the Aztecs And what happened with the Apaches, which was an anecdote in the book. Basically, what happened is Cortez, who was a Spanish explorer, went to Tenochtitlan in Mexico, which is the capital of the Aztec civilization, and killed the leader, who was Montezuma II. Never got his revenge until later. (laughs) I think that this was the one that actually crashed and hyperinflated the gold economy back in Europe, right? Well, I didn't make that connection, but yeah, that makes sense because he definitely obtained a lot of gold this way and starved the entire population of the city, which at the time was about 240,000. So you've got a quarter million people starving and there was no civilization left to occupy or colonize because everyone just died off and it fell apart. The entire Aztec empire just collapsed. A similar thing happened with the Incas as well. You could say that the Aztecs and the Incas, they were more like a spider because they had a central leader that was keeping this entire civilization together as sort of a keystone. And when you took out the keystone, the entire arch just collapsed. But by contrast with the Apaches, they were more like a starfish because they were a decentralized, distributed political structure with no clear leader. And they almost had this peer-to-peer kind of political structure where they had people within the local 
villages and tribes who were respected as elders and just people were watching them and thought, hey, that's a a cool person. I think I'm going to look up to them. But there was no like king or monarch or even a chief. It was just sort of respected peers, almost like maybe nodes in a network. You could make that comparison. And so they were really difficult for the Spanish to conquer because they weren't centralized. There was no path forward like there was with the Aztecs and the Incas. So when I think about this situation, it's really an example of leading by example versus leading by power. Power is the power to compel someone to do something, the power to maybe it's setting up a choice where they have to make a decision, but ultimately they have to do something. This is how Apache wound up getting attached to one of the most popular web server distros out there was this decentralized nature about how they operated. Oh, and I should say the Apaches actually defeated the Spanish. They didn't get conquered. Indeed, they were able to resist it because the Spanish, this centralized empire, had a lot of costs to wage this war. War is expensive, and they had to have places where they gathered their troops because you have to have central points of collection, central points of power, central points of instruction. And in this time before the internet or even telephones or telegraphs, you're talking about a chain of command that stretches probably years at a time between orders being issued versus orders potentially being received. Right. And they totally underestimated these people because they seemed like they don't have any organization. They're just like tribes who don't even have a clear leadership. This will be easy, but it was not easy. And actually, the Apaches had the big advantage because they didn't have the centralized leadership. And a hierarchy, again, one of the defining characteristics about it is that it's really easy for people to see who's in charge. And that's good both because it means that as someone lower in the structure, you understand who you have to be pleasing or who you have to ultimately be serving. And when you're higher in the structure, it means that people know who you are and it's easy for you to direct people. But it's also visible from the outside. And in this case, and in the case of the Incans, the Spanish really exploited that with a much smaller force than they eventually wound up taking out. And they were able to because it had this hierarchical, very leadership, very rigid structure. And when that was disrupted, chaos reigned. Tying this back to Bitcoin for a second. Remember in the days when Gavin Andreessen was by far the dominant, and I say dominant in terms of like the most influential, the most respected developer working on Bitcoin. This was the case for years. He was the original kind of handoff point from Satoshi. And he did in large part, I think a lot of people think a very good job for a very long time. And it was in a traditional system, what would have happened is that he would have said, oh, Craig Wright is Satoshi. He proved it to me. And then people would have been like, oh, well, Gavin knows because Gavin is the guy who's in charge of all of this. And he knows best in this circumstance because he's running this whole game and has the most to lose. But that's not what happened at all in Bitcoin. People didn't give him the credibility of believing him. It was the end of him. They didn't even give him the benefit of the doubt for the most part. So that's the really interesting part about these systems. They're so robust because there is no lasting commitment to that power. Any power to influence or to, to inform that anyone has is strictly delineated by how much they use it. And if they use it for things that are broadly perceived to be good or broadly perceived to be bad, because nobody has to follow them. Nobody had to respect Gavin Andreessen. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you in part by eToro. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with low spreads, no commission, and no hidden fees. eToro has spent more than 10 years making sophisticated trading features simple to use on any device with their intuitive app. 
If you're not ready to trade yet, practice building your portfolio with the eToro virtual trading feature. Best of all, you can connect with 12 million other eToro traders around the world to discuss trading, charts, and all things crypto. Create an account today at eToro.ltbshow.com. That's eToro.ltbshow.com. Brave is the next generation web browser that's fixing the internet, giving you unmatched speed, security, and privacy, including built in shields that block data grabbing ads and trackers. Brave gives you back control of your online data with a novel mechanism for transferring value between users, advertisers, and creators. Brave gives you the choice to opt in to view ads and earn reward tokens when advertisers pay you for your attention. You can use these tokens to access premium content and support your favorite creators. Switching to Brave is super easy. You can import your bookmarks with one click and continue to use your favorite Chrome extensions. The user experience is a lot like using Chrome, except better. And did we mention, Brave is totally free. Go to brave.com slash LTB and switch to Brave today. That's brave.com slash LTB. Brave.com slash LTB and switch today. Brave. Yesterday was about big tech. Today is about us. Something that the book doesn't quite touch upon that profoundly but is a very profound manifestation of the difference between a spider and a starfish is that starfish can literally fork. You can cut a starfish off and then they both regrow into two starfish and which one was the starfish? Well, they both are. And I think that one of the coolest things that happened in Bitcoin, in my opinion, was the UASF fork because it demonstrated that not corporatism, but like true chaotic capitalism in its most laissez-faire sense, hates and cannot sustain monopolies. That monopolies are kind of this manifestation of a coercive edifice or some sort of centralized power or inherent cost because the nature of groups and societies is sort of to break apart and divide. And so the thing that I think is so cool about Bitcoin is its ability to have chunks of it cut off and have both be distinct and grow and to keep going. At a very fundamental level, there'll never be an Amazon where a third of the shareholders decide to just create a spoke of Amazon that becomes independent. Now there are two Amazons. At a very fundamental level, systems that only aggregate and can never split apart and have both splittings be seen as first-level actors to each other are inherently spider-like structures. And systems that can fork and grow and mature independently are very starfish-like because of that, you'll never get those oppressive forces in aggregation in a starfish that you would in a spider. A starfish can fork. And not only when you split a starfish in half, are both of the clones that come out of that still the starfish, but maybe you split it in half and you put each one in a different environment and they can adapt to the different environment. Then you end up with two starfish that are different from that originally came from one single organism, but have adapted to fit their current environment. And I think that's another thing that decentralized systems are uniquely great at. While in a lot of ways, a decentralized organization is really, really robust against certain kinds of attacks, actually the Apache aren't around today, perhaps in the way that they were at that point. And that's because while they were able to survive sort of the Spanish approach, there was a different approach taken years and years later by the Americans that worked a lot better. And it's kind of informative for the story going forward. 
This isn't the only way that seems effective to really disrupt a decentralized or starfish organization, but it's the one that they used here. While the Spanish were defeated by this decentralized approach, many years later, the American government would take a different tack that proved much more effective. Natans were symbolic leaders, basically peers who other people thought were doing the right thing and who were worth following, but who fundamentally were peers and not different from any other person, except perhaps the level of respect that they'd earned and the power to influence that that respect gave them. When leaders are peers, there's a sense of camaraderie and oneness that I think is lacking in a hierarchical structure when perhaps your livelihood or your survival perhaps is dependent on staying in a leader's good graces. Without that power, following a leader is optional and opt-in. But on the other hand, it means that if you take leaders who operate as peers, you can actually disrupt and morph a decentralized organization by giving them more power. In the Apache case, the U.S. government gave cattle to the tribe, but they didn't do it in a kind of per-person way. They let the Natans, the leaders within the organization, the leaders within the decentralized structure, determine and handle the distribution within the tribe. So where before, these were leaders who people followed because they were believed to be correct, now there was this tangible material reward that could potentially come from being on the right side of one of these individuals. And where before, leaders had to really make sure that they were leading in a direction that had broad consensus and was largely agreed upon, otherwise another leader would emerge who would disagree with them and effectively take the power that they had. Now, this gift of more power and resources to a decentralized network had the impact of centralizing it. And once you centralize a decentralized network, then all of those advantages that we were talking about, it's like a starfish stops being a decentralized organization and grows ahead, right? And now it can no longer do that same sort of morphing process in the same clean way that it used to. Yeah, it becomes an octopus. No disrespect to octopuses because they're awesome. I think there's autonomy in octopus arms, isn't there? There's like a little bit of decentralization and intelligence in each of the arms. Octopuses have kind of a ganglia, which is like a small brain in each arm, as I understand it. But there is this unfortunate practice where sushi fishers will cut off the arm of an octopus and throw back the body, and they don't live after that, as I understand it. So they cannot really regenerate the way a starfish can. A little bit of intelligence, not the same. The point of bringing up the story about the Apache and about both the advantages that they gained from decentralization and the robustness it gave them against a centralized organization that kind of attacked them like they were a centralized organization versus how the American government did it, where they basically went to them almost as friends. I don't even know if it was intentional what the U.S. government at that point did, if they knew that that was what was going to happen or if they were just like, well, we might as well make friends with these people. But the effect is kind of the same. And so I think it's relevant to look around and say, are there any other projects out there that might have started as uh, starfish, but which have morphed over time, whether through their own actions or by perhaps getting a bunch of money or some other type of resources that has sort of de facto made them into a spider? Would you say that this could even be the difference between proof of stake and proof of work systems? Because I know that with a lot of proof of stake systems, they're federates, and then the federates typically have some sort of grant giving capacity. And so it's not just that they're securing the network, but it's also that they have financial rewards that they can dole out that you then have to aggregate to them for. It's sort of in hearing this explanation about how the Apache finally were defeated in this aggregation of power to convert them from a starfish to a spider. It sounds a lot like, at least in my understanding, of like the different dynamics between proof-of-work miners and how they're interpreted versus proof-of-stake federates that can give out grants. 
I think that's a fascinating question. I actually don't have a good answer to that. I've never thought about proof of stake in the context of this particular artifact we're talking about. Specifically proof of stake when they can also give out grants. So you're talking about projects that have like a master node approach or something like that, where the decision making is actually wrapped up in the consensus for a marketing program or a grant thing like Dash comes to mind. I know they used to do something like this. Right. Or Tezos or any of the other larger systems where you go to the quote unquote first among equals because of their capacity to financially reward you. I think another thing that this brings up, it's that question we always face with cryptocurrency topics. What level of Zoom are you looking at this thing from? Just taking Dash as an example that we all know, is Dash a decentralized organization and decentralized infrastructure that then has many centralized structures on top? I guess the theory is that the masternodes, if you have enough of them, wind up forming the equivalent of a decentralized network where people have skin in the game. Maybe you don't even know how centralized something is until it experiences a stress test of some kind, like an invader, just like the Apaches did. Ethereum right now is at a stage of its life where it's experiencing scaling challenges. I remember having several conversations years and years ago where Ethereum fans and people who are really into that were like, Ethereum is so much cheaper to use than Bitcoin and it's so much more efficient. And I remember Andreas telling us at the time, the example that he used was, it's like they're looking at a boat that's leaving the port, having challenges because it's left the port. And they're like, oh, we're so much better because we're still here in the port. But they hadn't actually really started the journey yet. And it was just kind of an inevitable question of when they reach the same point, they'll probably run into the same problems because those are the problems that you run at when you're at sea. But it's hard to appreciate that those are the problems when you're still sitting there kind of waiting for the thing to launch. The way that Andreas reminds us to keep this scaling debate and challenges in perspective is that scaling challenges are a hallmark of success. You don't experience them as a community unless there's a demand for what you're offering and more people want to use it than you can accommodate. No one goes to that restaurant anymore. It's always full. Exactly. It's a marker of success rather than a failure of any kind. And so it's true. In many ways, Bitcoin is the trailblazer. And Ethereum could look at Bitcoin to see how they have accommodated some of these scaling challenges and learn from that. I'm thinking about more examples of where we might have seen this. And another one that comes to mind is the project Blockstack. I don't think we've ever talked about the project and it sort of doesn't matter what it does. The thing that makes it relevant here is that I remember in the very early days of that project back in 2013, 2014, maybe it was 2015 that they got started. They were very, very much a decentralized sort of protocol network, all self-funded. And then over time, they took a little bit of funding and they became more of a formal organization. And then most recently, they did the first Reg A+, which is like a legal form of an ICO, and raised a bunch of money. And one of the original founders resigned to go over and work on other things. And now the other founder, uh, Munib, is the CEO. The question is, I think it's less about the organization and I think it's more about the money. Because in the early days, the way that they had to kind of appeal to people was this is a better solution that solves your problems in a better way. And now what they're doing is they have money. And so they've created all of these different bounty programs where people are encouraged to create projects and to use them. But ultimately, the question is, if that money went away, then would people be doing that? And I think that fundamentally, there's a change. Yes and no. I mean, there are critiques in Blockstack and Ryan and Neeb are good guys. But I will say, would Bitcoin go away if it didn't dole out free money? I mean, aren't all these financial systems systems of financial incentive? It's a good point. I guess the question is, there's no judgment that happens in the way that Bitcoin distributes those tokens. 
There's a clear contest with rules that are laid out and no human judgment effectively. It's an entirely automated system. Yeah, yeah, but when do you have a dynamic shift? At what level of linear change do you have a dynamic change? Because obviously I would say that Ethereum were more sellouts than Bitcoin and how they started. But is the sellout curve where you now have a dynamic change in how the system actually gets implemented? You're being really negative about this. I wouldn't call it a sellout curve. I don't think anything about this is selling out. The question is, how do you most effectively bring about the change that you're trying to enact? I think that we've seen for something like Bitcoin, that to do it any other way than with this fully decentralized approach is really challenging. And, you know, there are certainly challenges that change as time goes on. If you look at the Jeff Bezos of the world and things like that, he had a lot of competition getting there. But through that competition, however they did it, he managed to become the dominant player in that space. And so clearly it was much better to do that as a CEO than it would have been to do it as a decentralized network. Right. And also there weren't incentives from the inside to fork. Like it's weird that in governmental structures and corporations or government structured organizations, because it's a legal entity, there are incentives to coalesce. And the only time you're broken up is fundamentally when it's the government doing it to you. They don't actually allow market dynamics to break yourself up with. So everyone says Metcalf's law and all these other nice, funny equations as to why there can only ever be one blockchain. But I'm really interested in how many of these are going to break out in Fork. And maybe we'll have as many Bitcoins as we have Starfish. <laughs> it seems to be going that direction. So before we end for today, I want to briefly veer into philosophy or a bit more of metaphysics and how these ideas can also be found in the Buddhist concept of self. I'm quoting from beliefnet.com, quote, The starfish represents the decentralized organization and provides a fitting metaphor for the Buddha's notion of self. There is no person at the top, no executive, no CEO in control of self. The self is an interplexing network of connections. Neuroscience confirms Buddha's idea. We can't go inside the brain and find the self. Whatever self is, it arises out of the interplay of these sensory and brain processes, end quote. I just want to expand a little bit on this. The way that it was explained to me originally is basically that our conscious is a curator and our subconscious is basically the fire hose. And so if you're hungry, that's one little piece in there. And maybe that's the thing that becomes dominant and you have to focus on, right? You curate it up. I'm hungry. I'm going to go eat. And then your conscious kind of actions on that. But everything that you think, all the voices in your head, your conscience and all the different levels of everything, to a certain extent, your demons too. The one that's saying, I'd rather just sleep today. I'd rather not go to work. Those are all different parts of this decentralized network that actually is you. I really like the analogy. It's how decision-making effectively, even internal to one individual, is not actually a centralized process. But you can also zoom back and think about it as a centralized process. How much do you think that applies here? And what do you see in that? Recently, over the past year, I've been getting really interested in meditation and also in the idea that just thinking about consciousness and personality and the idea that there's a model with which we can look at ourselves in which we have not just a personality, but also sub-personalities. So they're kind of like little scripts that run as part of our personality. Some of them are to keep us functioning in the world, like drivers or something like that, or things that automate our processes. Some of them are meant to keep us feeling good and happy. They're protecting us from pain, or they're keeping us distracted from negative feelings. And then this may be a little woo-woo for some of our listeners, but there's the idea of that we have past versions of ourselves as subpersonalities. So like child selves, 
that maybe got stuck in time when you experienced a trauma or something like that when you were younger. Those parts, we can work to not only get to know them, but integrate them more fully within our total self. And in that sense, you can look at it as not just a sort of manager sitting on top, curating stuff from the fire hose of the bubbling subconscious, but also a decentralized network on top of the unconscious of subpersonalities that are all doing different jobs. The connections among them can be strengthened and enhanced if you are willing to listen to them and get to know them. You wake up on the wrong side of the bed and the curator is different, I guess is what you're saying in a different way. Right, exactly. And when you integrate all these different subpersonalities, you get this idea of self-leadership, where your true self or your most actualized self is the one who's in control, not these subpersonalities that are mainly functioning to keep you distracted from pain or to keep you feeling comfortable, but your true self is exercising self-leadership and then you make the best decisions and you feel your happiest. By the way, the concepts I'm talking about come from the idea of internal family systems. If you've ever heard of Jay Earlier or Richard Schwartz or Pete Gerlash, these are all pioneers in that field in case anybody wants to check it out. The whole internal family systems thing is about the protector and the... Um... Yeah, protectors, managers, inner children. Those are all types of parts. Different people put their different spins on this idea, but I think the idea is a really interesting model to look at our personalities and ourselves and to reach a higher level of integration and happiness and consciousness. So in terms of decentralized and centralized networks, this is really interesting because consciousness itself, it's like everybody has been trying to pin down an area of the brain or something like that where consciousness comes from. And we can just put it on there and it's really simple. But it's not that simple because no one has really been able to do that. Consciousness seems to be an emergent property of all these neural connections that are happening. And we can enter altered states of consciousness by changing the connections and the strength of the different connections. And we can even exercise conscious control over that through things like meditation. So I think of the brain and the mind totally as starfish. They're decentralized organizations. <laughs> and even though it may seem centralized at first glance, if you really zoom in on it, it's not. Yeah. When we're talking about this stuff, what's coming to me is lucid dreaming. Dreaming is an interface. Lucid dreaming is taking control of that interface where you're able to kind of access some of this stuff that maybe is a little bit further down in the decentralized network. Maybe the stuff that isn't necessarily getting actively curated up in the term I keep using, but is there and is important. And the other thing that I think about is you mentioned the child person and like different childlike personalities that we might cling on to. And it's interesting to think that when you're in an emotional state, like if you have an area that you're sensitive about or something like that, then it can be really confusing sometimes why you're feeling that. You don't consciously understand it, but in reality, it's sort of this manifestation bubbling up from that decentralized part of you. Yeah. And this is also a really good model to understand why we sometimes feel conflicted because Sometimes we're like, well, on one hand, part of me wants to do this, but part of me thinks this and thinks I should do something else. Well, if we think of our mind as a decentralized network of subpersonalities, then that makes sense. And we can actually hold space for all of those different parts of ourselves who may have conflicting beliefs or opinions. Right. It's not my spleen and my lung disagreeing. It's just different parts with it, the same <laughs> ultimate network. Yeah, that's a very interesting way to think about it. You were saying, Adam, like the conscious mind sort of sits on top of the subconscious mind and curates the thoughts that are allowed to come to the surface. What is meditation but the practice of 
letting those thoughts arise, but then letting them go and practicing a different practice than we usually do. Usually we're very actively curating those thoughts and sometimes we cling on to them and sometimes we think about them more and they lead to more thoughts. Well, in a state of meditation, you're just letting the thoughts come up and then letting them go. And that's very different than our normal state of consciousness. And it can have lots of benefits. I bet there's lots of people who listen to this podcast who meditate. This is not the topic we're talking about today, but I don't care because it's interesting. So Aldous Huxley, very well-known author, wrote one particular book about his sort of reflections about psychedelic experiences. I think it was mescaline or something like that that he was using. But there's a part of that book, The Doors of Perception, I think is what it's called, that talks about, that completely changed the way that I think about how consciousness works. And this has reminded me of it so much. It's not the same, but it's very similar. So the basic idea is that we think of our brains as databases. But what if they're not databases? What if, in fact, it's an interface that's actually connecting up to a larger decentralized network that is basically consciousness, humanity, or whatever? And really what our consciousness is, is it's a filter. And that filter takes what is everything in terms of consciousness and narrows it down so that the only thing that we as individuals see is our own consciousness, the information that's relevant to us, that's relevant to our demons and all that sort of thing. The brain is a filter as a filtration mechanism versus as a database. And it's the same thing, like the human consciousness blockchain in the sky. And then we're all just effectively nodes at the end, applying bloom filters <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> oh man, to the UTXO set as it comes down off the blockchain. I mean, it's like, anyways, very, very interesting topic of conversation today. I really appreciate you guys kind of going afield with me on this. I think that this year we're going to be doing a lot more of these philosophical and sort of topics that are clearly tied back to Bitcoin and tied back to cryptocurrency, but which aren't about the news. Because I'm so tired of the news. I'm so tired of caring about any of the things about it. And really just the question is, what's the point? What are we doing here? What's still interesting at this point? Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today's episode was sponsored by eToro.com and Brave.com. This episode featured Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine. Music for today's episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz, with editing by Jonas. Have any questions or comments? Email adam at ltbshow.com. Have a good one.